Hi, and welcome to Good Authority. My name is Eric Wooten, and I'm joined here today by my Georgetown colleague, Joanna Lewis, to talk about the most recent COP meeting in Dubai and global climate change cooperation more generally. Joanna is the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of Energy and Environment and the Director of the Science, Technology and International Fair program at Georgetown University. She runs the Clean Energy and Climate Research Group, and she has led several dialogues facilitating US-China climate change engagement. Most recently, Joanna published a book called Cooperating for the Climate, Learning from International Partnerships in China's Clean Energy Sector with MIT Press. Welcome, Joanna. Thanks for having me. So, Joanna, you've been to a lot of these COP meetings, right, which are these meetings on the convention of the parties. Uh, can you say what these meetings are about and what it's like to be an academic uh, in those giant climate uh, change talks? Sure. Well, um, you know, I've been going to COP meetings in a variety of different capacities um, over the last 20 years or so. Uh, my first COP was COP6. Things that have brought me there have been research related. Um, you know, a lot of my work focuses on the dynamics that we see play out in these international climate meetings. So as an academic, it's it's really useful, I think, to see firsthand how these negotiations unfold uh, in real time and and having been over the years, sort of how things have changed, right? Um, particularly how different countries have positioned themselves and how that's evolved over the last couple of decades. Um, of course, a lot of my own research focuses on China and how China positions itself in the context of international climate negotiations, uh, as well as sort of, you know, bilaterally with other countries. So this is a great place to, to see that play out. Um, and then finally, you know, because this meeting, I mean, COP28 is is on record, I guess, as being the largest COP yet, uh, I think over 80,000 participants. Uh, while it is a bit of a circus, it is a great place to connect with other people working in the climate space, both inside and outside the government, you know, from all over the world who, who come to these meetings. So um, this gave me a chance to catch up with people, you know, from all over and also to put together some events trying to highlight uh, recent research and focus on key issues that are salient to the negotiations. So can you tell me a little bit more about how that works, how you actually connect to people at such a large meeting? Because I know you have businesses there, all the oil companies were there, especially here. I've heard a lot about um, their academics there, there's government representatives. How do you know who to target? How do you how do you know where to be and who to meet and who to, who to talk to at, a, at an event like that? <laughs> yeah, it's always a challenge. I mean, you could, um, you know, easily in any given moment of any day, you could be in 10 places at any one time that would be valuable. So you just have to make some decisions. Uh, and I brought some students this year who were running all over the place. And, and you know, when you're there with a, a team of people, that can actually be a great way to try to cover multiple things that are happening at the same time and, and then share notes and whatnot. But I was actually primarily following the formal negotiations. You know, a lot of what happens these days at COP28 is, was really, you know, what we call like a sideshow, right? I mean, there are the formal side events and then the side side events and there are meetings and conferences and receptions and pavilion events. You know, every every government pretty much has their own pavilion. A lot of the private sector entities have their own pavilions. Um, you know, Georgetown, we partner uh, the Georgetown Climate Center works a lot with state and local level climate implementation. So we partnered with the Climate Registry to put on some events at their pavilion. You know, so there's just many moving parts. And 
you know, for me, it's uh, the challenge is actually trying to follow the formal negotiating process sort of while everything else is happening um, around that. But, you know, it's also valuable, um, you know, another place I spend a lot of my time other than trying to kind of get into the formal meeting rooms or meeting with government negotiators one-on-one to get updates on what's happening um, is the, the pavilions that the different countries run. So for example, uh, China, you know, puts on um, a series of events that brings together their negotiators, many of their leading academics, b- business representatives uh, to one room, you know, one space. And so it's a really great opportunity also to connect with people, no matter what your expertise is, you know, you can sort of find a a group of like-minded, you know, uh, academics or experts that are in this area. And so it it really is while it is a bit of a zoo, it's it's in a very efficient way to, you know, meet with a lot of people in a very short amount of time and in one location. Right. And those formal negotiations, I'm assuming it's hard to really get access to the people that, that know the ins and outs of those negotiations. But what were you especially paying attention to this year in terms of the formal negotiations? What were the most important topics? Yeah, well, the really the big issue um, for the COP was the global stock take, you know, this uh, sort of process to review how um, countries have made inroads on their climate goals that they had put forward in the Paris Agreement. Uh, we know, of course, that most most pledges have fallen short. And so this was really the first formal review of that and then a discussion of sort of how to move forward, right? And so the language in that agreement was going to be important to really send the right signal to specific countries and and actors, and then, you know, globally on how the negotiations would move forward in the coming years. And so, you know, I mean, it it is actually, it is an observer, you actually can get pretty good access to the negotiations um, if you know where to be and when, um, and then, I have relationships, of course, with many people in the United States government delegation. My a bunch of my students actually did a project for them leading up to the COP. So, um, you know, while everyone is quite busy, um, you know, people are often willing to take the time to update observers on on what's happening. Since you know, I think everyone agrees that having observers there is an important part of the process. Right. And so with regard to the global stock take, obviously the message overall was rather pessimistic and, and the Paris Agreement is built around this idea of ratcheting up, right? The idea that that uh, countries will make stronger and stronger commitments over time. Um, despite the overall negative message um, in the global stock take, do you still think that there is some evidence for that ratcheting up effect happening? I do. I mean, I, I think overall the outcomes that we saw at COP28, the package of outcomes are being called the, the UAE consensus. I think it's actually really quite positive what came out of these meetings. I think it's sort of easy as an observer from the outside to say not enough is being done, right? We have so much more to do, of course, to make real progress on addressing climate change. But again, having watched these negotiations for a couple of decades that are just really about these incremental, right, like baby steps, we actually got more than that at this meeting. So I, I think in many ways, that's a very positive thing. I mean, what, you know, beyond the global stock take, um, which I'll come back to in a second, you know, I think the, of course, you know, it was looking a few weeks before the meeting, like loss and damage was going to be an issue that would be extremely challenging to move forward on at this meeting. And then actually some big decisions were reached in advance of the meeting, which allowed a lot of other things to move forward. I think that was actually really constructive, and the UAE presidency, the United States and others played a really important role, I think, in making that happen so that the time in Dubai could be spent 
in a much more focused way on the global stock take and other key decisions, you know, because it's just so hard to have enough time, enough hours um, in the roughly two week period, you know, to, to deal with all these challenging issues. And, and I do think, you know, if you look at, you know, the interesting thing at these meetings, if you're sort of paying attention to these draft texts that are released throughout the two weeks, you can actually watch, right, the evolution of these texts and how different countries, you know, end up sort of compromising and um, really kind of changing their position, right, from what you see during the first week of the meeting to the second week of the meeting. And so I think there is actually some really constructive language in the global stock take agreement, which, you know, I think most importantly sets the stage for the next round of the, the so-called NDCs. These are the nationally determined contributions, right? The targets that countries have agreed to under the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, we're now two years away from COP30, which is the deadline that had been set for countries to submit their next formal round of NDCs, right? And these are going to be pledges that essentially go beyond 2030, right? Sort of into the 2035 timeframe. And that is just so crucial, right? Because we already know that, you know, we are essentially in the pivotal decade for getting onto lower emissions trajectories right now, right in the 2020s. And then, but, you know, if countries are signaling in the next one to two years where they're going to be heading by 2035, that actually is extremely significant. Um, and especially, you know, key countries like China, when they're going to be releasing numbers that actually show, you know, major changes and, and shifts in their emissions trajectory in the next year or two. I think that was all teed up quite nicely by some of the, the language in the global stock take. You know, this is the language around tripling of renewable energy capacity, doubling the rate of energy efficiency, both, you know, by the end of this decade. And then, of course, the language on transitioning away from, from fossil fuels and from coal. Right. And, and that, that got a lot of attention in the press, right? That language over transitioning away, especially because the, the meeting was held in the in the UAE itself. Um, so as as a as a political scientist and as an international relations scholar, we're always a little bit skeptical that this language sort of matters by itself. We have these diplomatic meetings and we uh, agree on this, this this big language at these meetings, but but how do we know that it actually percolates into into domestic policies? Because obviously, climate mitigation happens mostly at the domestic level, right? We have to have policies in place domestically to achieve these these results. So, what makes you optimistic that this sort of global language that we're agreeing on now here in the COP will actually percolate into the next uh, NDCs or these commitments that countries make to to reduce emissions? Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right that these sort of high level commitments, like the language that's released at a meeting like the COP, it, it's really symbolic, essentially, right? I mean, of course, none of this is binding. And there's, you know, the, the Paris Agreement was sort of designed in a way that it's not about sort of hard enforcement mechanisms. It really is about this sort of um, countries sort of using each other to to ratchet up and, and just sort of provide this sort of transparency and peer pressure with the hope that that will eventually lead to stronger outcomes. I mean, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty in a process like that, but I think really you have to just look at what's happening domestically and how the actions that are being pledged symbolically at the international level translate into national and subnational laws, as you mentioned. So, and of course, the way that we investigate this, you know, sort of, you know, as a scholar of like comparative climate policy, right, you you actually look for very different signals in different 
countries that have, you know, very different political systems to how you even set climate policy, right? So, you know, the United States, for example, has a relatively ambitious target in its NDC, but we have no national level climate policy, right? Or climate goal, we have, of course, the IRA and sort of associated policies that help to promote clean energy and these other things, right? But we have no binding, you know, uh, carbon goal, carbon market, right, at the national level, whereas the European Union obviously does, uh, even China does, right? These, you know, the actual goals are enshrined in their five-year plans and then in in sort of provincial, national and provincial goals. So, you know, you have to sort of look at different different ways that these goals get translated into law, legislation, targets in different national contexts. And it really is quite different depending on, on the context you're looking at. Yeah. And so you mentioned the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which is, of course, a form of industrial, green industrial policy, right, as, as we call it, which is a lot of subsidies to stimulate the development of renewable energies and to develop sort of a clean energy um, industry in the United States. There seems to be somewhat of a global race going on to implement these kinds of green industrial policies. And you've worked a lot a lot on this, especially in the context of China. How has China been been responding to to the IRA and other uh, green industrial policies in the United States and elsewhere? And I'll say this, but partially because it's controversial, right? Because these policies tend to focus on domestic industries and so give subsidies to American-based industries and maybe allies of the United States. And they seem to exclude China a bit. So is that creating some tensions in the U.S.-China relations? Right. Well, you know, I think it's it's interesting when you look at the low carbon transition, right, and sort of the winners and losers, how this is going to play out. You know, really the countries that are able to play a large role, not just in deploying clean energy technologies, including renewable energy technologies, but also in manufacturing these technologies, right, are going to be able to reap a lot of the economic benefits and um, you know, the way we sort of see the political economy, right, of the sort of green industrial policy playing out is that, you know, countries that put in place ambitious climate goals sort of don't want to then be reliant on importing technology from other countries and then essentially transferring those economic benefits of the low carbon transition outside their national borders, right? And especially if you're going to be looking at the just transition, you know, away from fossil fuels and what this is going to mean. Um, in countries that still have, you know, very large parts of their economy driven by fossil fuels, how you might be able to substitute that out for the, you know, sort of cleaner industries, as opposed to just moving from, you know, a, a country, for example, that imports oil to import, you know, oil from the Middle East to import solar panels from China, right? These are both, you know, not only sort of economic concerns, but can create security concerns, you know, in terms of supply chain stability and whatnot. So this is sort of, it's a complicated issue if, you know, you're trying to optimize globally how to achieve a low carbon transformation as rapidly and as inexpensively as possible you would essentially want to manufacture you know solar panels wind turbines etc as cheaply as possible at scale uh, and wherever you can do this, right? You would be sort of blind to where national borders would lie. But we know realistically that is not how policymakers see things. And so they would actually rather pay more potentially for technology um, made domestically. So, you know, if that is sort of viewed as protecting local workers, protecting local industries and and leading to local economic development, right? So, this has, um, I think, been one of the issues at the heart of the strains in the U.S.-China relationship over the last year or so. Not the only issue, but one of them. 
And it, of course, this one is salient in the climate context, because while this is really, you know, sort of an economic um, and technology issue, this directly spills over into our ability to meet our climate goals. And I should say, particularly developing countries' ability to meet their climate goals, because a lot of the future deployment we're going to see of renewables, right, is going to have to happen in the developing world. And these are countries that are particularly price sensitive to the costs of these technologies. And so for the most part, I've been very reliant on countries like China, you know, providing the manufacturing scale and um, the major cost reductions that we've seen in, in renewables over the past decade. Right. I've heard that the price of solar panels has decreased quite a bit in the last the last years. And people are speculating that this is partially because of subsidies, new subsidies on the China side. Is, is that is that accurate or am I am I misinformed on that? No, I mean, a lot of the analysis will show that it's a combination of, you know, not just sort of the direct state subsidization that that the Chinese state has certainly provided to its solar manufacturers, but also just the pure manufacturing scale, right? And so there's been some estimates that show, you know, China is responsible for perhaps, you know, 90% of the cost reductions we've seen over the past decade in solar energy that has just made it so much more widely affordable. And, you know, it is such a key technology in the climate transition. You know, China in many ways has subsidized um, the innovation and, and deployment in this area. The flip side of that, of course, is that um, when you have sort of one country shutting others out of the marketplace, you know, um, by the subsidization, you can affect innovation, you know, in a, in a negative way. Um, and, you know, we, of course, have seen many U.S. and European solar manufacturers essentially shut out of the market because they couldn't compete um, with the Chinese subsidization. And, and so, you know, again, there's sort of short term and long term pros and cons to all of this. You know, again, lower prices are good if you want to uh, address climate change quickly. They're maybe not so good if you want to do this in a way where it's sort of politically viable, where others are, um, you know, you have a more sort of equitable sharing of, of the costs and benefits. And you're doing this in a way that continues to encourage innovation, because of course, we're going to need to see more and more, um, you know, innovations, not just in cost declines, but in efficiency um, and new technologies being developed, you know, across the board and in, in the clean energy space to get to where we need to be, um, you know, to, to get to net zero and, and, and to turn around current emissions curves. And uh, yeah, we're seeing this in other industries as well. So electric vehicles are, are are very interesting in that regard, where obviously China is now a market leader, but the United States is trying to get uh, more of a share there uh, there as well. Um, you also mentioned uh, carbon markets earlier, and, and you mentioned the introduction of carbon markets in China. Could you explain a little bit about how that's how that's going to work? Sure. Well, within China, you know, they've actually teed up what is scheduled to be sort of the largest national emissions trading system in the world, you know, larger than the current uh, European emissions trading system. The plans are that it would cover sort of the eight key sectors. What's different, though, about the Chinese system and the way that it's set up right now, it's not sort of your traditional cap and trade system, the way that Europe has, has established this and the way, you know, we've sort of seen subnational entities in the United States and other places do it as well. It's, it's essentially a tradable performance standard. It encourages sort of um, energy efficiency and, and, and lower sort of carbon inten intensive industries and products and, and electricity. So right now it only covers the power sector. 
but China's carbon market is scheduled to roll out to include more and more sectors. You know, it's it's a, it's a fascinating program. It kind of came from several subnational programs, you know, provincial and, and municipal level programs that were experimented with uh, all over the country. And then this national program was designed and, you know, it's it's somewhat of a interesting phenomenon to see a uh, market-based policy implemented in what is still, for the most part, a non-market economy. But, you know, still, you know, while it's early, you, you know, you do still see sort of some signals in the right direction. Um, you know, a lot more is going to have to be done to make this program actually more effective in reducing emissions in China. You haven't seen it really, you know, bend any curves um, or even put uh, enough sort of a, enough of a price signal to phase out the construction of new coal. We know that is still happening, for example, in China. But I think there's a lot of potential for this um, program to sort of be a lev- one of the many levers that could help China to um, decarbonize. Right. And and we have to realize, of course, that in Europe, it took them uh, many years to actually have that system work app- appropriately as well. And now it seems to be a fairly effective uh, system as it is. So what do you see sort of as the future of U.S. climate, climate change cooperation? You mentioned earlier there there are lots of tensions now between the U.S. and China. The solar sector and the electric vehicles is, is only one of them. Obviously, it's a lot about sort of high tech chips and so on, but it seems to be caught up in the in a broader set of geopolitical tensions between uh, between the U.S. and China. Are you still optimistic? And w- why is it important, first of all, for U.S. And, and, and China to cooperate on on climate? I think that's really a key thing to consider, right? Sort of why do we focus so much on the United States and China when it comes to an international climate solution? Um, you know, on paper, right, the United States and China together are responsible for you know, under half of global emissions, but you really can't get to a point where you're, you know, making any substantial emissions reductions unless both of these countries are taking this seriously. And we know that when the United States and China have been able to come together and come to agreement on, you know, contentious issues, issues that are contentious, not just within the U.S.-China dynamic, but but globally, it can really send a powerful signal to the rest of the world that, you know, if the United States and China can agree on this, maybe we can also figure out a way to compromise and come to an agreement. We saw this play out many times. Um, you know, a lot of what my book documents is sort of the the China bilateral relationship with multiple countries, but the United States in particular, and how um, specific bilateral agreements actually make their way into multilateral agreements. So we know in the lead up to the Paris Agreement, you know, the United States and China issued a joint statement, including early announcement of their NDCs. And a lot of the language in that statement sort of made its way into the Paris Agreement. Um, and then we saw this actually happen again in the lead up to COP28, where, um, you know, the there was a U.S.-China um, the statement, the Sunnyland statement, which was released uh, a few weeks ahead of COP28. And you saw language in there, particularly surrounding 2035 goals, you know, in line with a 1.5 degree target covering all greenhouse gases, um, you know, including non-CO2 greenhouse gases. This has been a huge focus of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship, particularly in the last year, you know, where the United States has really been trying to push China to do more on the non-CO2 greenhouse gases, which currently are not included in any of 
China's um, national or international climate goals. And so it's mostly methane, right? And uh... yeah, methane has been the main target, but it's also N2O and, and HFCs and a few others, right? So um, this has been a really key push, you know, by um, Secretary Kerry and his team. And then you saw um, some pretty good language on that in the Sunnyland statement. And then you saw that language kind of scaled out, right, to cover um, all countries in the context of the global stock take agreement. Um, and so now, you know, everyone has sort of pledged to put out these global goals, 2035, you know, economy-wide, all, all greenhouse gases, right? And that was not, you know, in any sense, that was not a done deal <laughs> until, you know, the United States and China put it on paper and then everyone else was able to sort of say, okay, maybe this is something we could also agree to in, in the COP28 context. So, you know, I do think that... Um, these negotiations that happen between China and the United States in the climate space really do send these key signals to the rest of the world and have been able to push together a multilateral process. And I should say this actually happens outside the climate space, too. We saw this happen um, in the Montreal Protocol, you know, other sort of international environmental agreements um, as well. Uh, and, you know, while this doesn't necessarily carry over to all aspects of the U.S.-China relationship that are, you know, still much more strained i you know i still do think that it is it is a good thing that the united states and china can engage on this issue even as other issues remain more challenging because it keeps lines of communication open and you know a lot of the disagreements actually come from misunderstandings and and a lack of transparency and and good information and that really can only come through dialogue and and exchange right so thank you so much, Joanna. That's um, maybe we should end on a slightly hopeful note there. That's uh, that's probably good, and not talk about the next U.S. elections and how it can all throw um, you know create all kinds of new problems in this climate relationship again. So thanks so much for for your insight on this, and um, maybe we'll uh, talk to you again after another COP. Sounds good. Thank you. Good Authority's mission is to bring insights from political science to a broader audience. Everything we publish, including this podcast episode, is freely available with no paywall or subscription fee. All Good Authority content are under a Creative Commons license and can be copied and redistributed as long as the work is attributed to us and any changes are noted. We'd like to thank our funders, especially the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Democracy Fund, and Vanderbilt University. You can find links to what we mentioned in this episode on our website, goodauthority.org. Thank you.